Welcome to Payne on Politics, a podcast where host Dr. Gregory Payne of Emerson College sits down with fellow experts to discuss the current state of politics, public opinion, and global affairs. In a world growing increasingly complex, communication and critical thinking is key. This only makes the Emerson motto, expression necessary to evolution, more true. It's Friday morning, and this is Gregory Payne, the Chair of Communication Studies at Emerson College, the first communication department in the United States for Payne on Politics. And, of course, the world was saddened yesterday when we heard the passing of the longest-reigning monarch, Queen Elizabeth. I have a friend and colleague with me who is a specialist in public relations, Dr. Robert Brown. And we spoke last night, and we decided we need to talk to Shepard about trying to get something up because we were both having rhetorical ping-pong about the significance of this event. So, Dr. Brown, welcome to Paint on Politics. Thank you. It's good to be here. Rob, as someone who's practiced PR globally, written speeches for... CEOs and appeared, you know, in vital speeches. Tell me from your perspective what this is all about and why we see this global outpouring of support for Queen Elizabeth. Well, that that's a perfect segue because I'm going to read something that uh, Liz Truss said in her two and a half minute speech, which is just wonderful to unpack. Today, the crown passes as it has done for more than a thousand years to our new monarch, our new head of state, His Majesty King Charles III. With the king's family, we mourn the loss of the king's mother. And as we mourn, we must come together as a people to support him, to help him bear the awesome responsibility that he now carries for us all. We offer him our loyalty and devotion, just as his mother devoted so much to so many for so long. And with the passing of the second Elizabethan age, we usher in a new era in the magnificent history of our great country, exactly as Her Majesty would have wished by saying the words, God save the King. Very eloquently done. Of course, I heard Boris Johnson also give a very emotional speech, which was not the normal uh, for him. So I think people in England, across the pond in America, that fought right across the common here to for independence. What is it about Elizabeth, Diana, uh, the monarchy that seems to captivate us as an audience, not just here, but globally? Uh, there are many including me, there are many Anglophiles in this country. And uh, I remember I remember going to a Students for Democratic Society meeting in the 60s. The SDS. The, S, the notorious SDS, because I am dating myself, but I go back then. And I remember that, that I, as I watched, I did not become a member, but as I watched at the University of Rochester, the head of the university's uh, SDS during the student strike about uh, napalm in Vietnam. I remember he was wearing boots, he had long hair, uh, and he said something about wanting to be a monarch. I think we we have a, a nostalgic feeling for the monarchy. And in fact, as recently as uh, the unitary executive theory, uh, under which Bill Barr, uh, what he, how he adjudicated, how he spun the Mueller report, that that the president was was uh, was a monarch, 
uh, if the president did it, as, as Richard Nixon said, if the president does it, it must be right. It must be legal. And we love monarchs. It seems as though, Rob, we like monarchs as long as they're not ruling over us. But do you think we would have, how do you think we in America would have reacted with a monarch who, even with her 70-year reign, people were trying to find a time when she didn't really meet the test of time and respond as she should be. So what was the magic, the rhetorical magic of Elizabeth that made her so successful? Well, I think you may be referring to uh, the moment of the death of Princess Diana, who was the people's princess, populism. Uh, And it's, it's so interesting because that was the moment Queen Elizabeth, who is so stolid, and so much has been said already about her, obviously, and will in the next 10 days of mourning uh, be said about her and written about her, that is the moment when she had to change. And this is someone who is famous for not changing uh, from the time she was a little girl, had no interest in being, she had an interest in horses. She had no interest in being a queen, even being in the public eye at all. But she was such a good doobie that she did it. When Diana died and she was shocked, it was the young um, PM, Blair, who pushed her and others, who pushed her toward responding to this pain in the behind called Princess Di. They didn't care much for her. Princess, uh, Prince Philip particularly was very vocal about this, but she had to do she was able to do it because she was a great performer. I think when we, when, when you're talking about that, it reminds me a lot of uh, Ron Heifetz across the river who talks about adaptive leadership. And I know the Queen Mother did not want her to do anything. She said, no, she's no longer a part of the royal family. Let's stay in Balmoral. As you said, the Duke did not want it, her to do anything. Charles seemed to say we have to. She, is, she was a part of the family. But as you said, as the uh, expert in public opinion, she saw the Daily Mail. She saw where, ma'am, show us you care. So she, even against her own probably conviction, decided that she was the people's queen. She came down. They visited. And of course, you hit that poignant moment when everyone basically, I think it was 57% said, let's get rid of the monarchy if they're going to act like this. And again, the mediated reality fits in here. Helen Marin playing the queen gets out of the car. She's looking at the flowers. And yet a young, young girl walks up to her. Rob, can you explain the importance of what that was all about in terms of adaptive leadership? Well, there were so many flowers in front uh, of the gate that they couldn't even open it at the castle. But she gets out of her car. She finally, she has to do this. And finally, she didn't even want to to have the coronation uh, on television. They had to push her into this. The crown didn't didn't want this. Their advisors didn't. She gets out of the car. She walks around and, and all these notes are for Diana. Diana who is a complicated person uh, and not apparently the mediated reality is, and I would say that we know, we know this queen, uh, Americans do, Um, British may know her rather differently, but we know her through mediated reality. We know her through the great performances of Helen Mirren, Claire Foy as the young queen, Olivia Coleman as the older queen, and there'll be another queen when this season drops. We know her through performances. And she was a great performer. 
she comes out and the emotional climax of that movie was when after seeing uh, things, including very unpleasant things about her, negative, uh, negative comments about her as being this cold, unfeeling bee. I, I, I just abbreviate here. Uh, little girl, she sees a little girl, goes over to a little girl in the throng. A little girl has some flowers. And the queen thinks that they're for Diana. They must be for Diana. And she says, oh, no, ma'am, they're for you. That's when we all tear up. And the fact is, there is that emotion. She was not uh, emotional, except in one interesting way. She became Monty Python in the last, <laughs> last, in the last decade or two. She had a wonderful sense of humor. I mean, the palace did. The Christmas greeting, I thought, was great when she was having the biscuit, you know. Yes, uh, you know, parachuting in, parachuting in, the James Bond moment. Yes. And, of course, all those corgis. And see, to me, what I find interesting is, I, and this is where I think Diana, who did elevate the monarchy and introduce them to where they needed to go, I think the queen took that uh, very, very uh, keenly. And one thing I noticed from a rhetorical perspective, when she gave the speech at Buckingham Palace when she came back after that moment that you talked about and she said I speak to you as a mother and as a grandmother the empathy there but she also from what I understand was the one who said let's flip this where instead of the stay books from Oxford you know on the background in the library she said let's turn it around and you as a PR scholar would know it was the people milling about in front of Buckingham so there was the queen with the people behind her and giving a speech which to me was able to change the entire tide and I think she that adaptive leader saved the monarchy I find her to be one of the most adaptive leaders that I have come to know and in that moment of crisis for the monarchy when still many say why would Rebecca Mead writing in the New Yorker today said uh, a a modern monarchy is that is uh, a Definitive oxymoron. <laughs> what is there? Well, how, how do you have a modern monarchy? But she did turn it around and that she triumphed. Uh, she triumphed. She was able to do that. She, uh, she knew uh, that the, she was the, the people's queen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered, um, I wondered, Greg, when, I, when we were talking yesterday, I wondered what the reaction would be uh, in the UK to her death. Uh, it's in, almost impossible not to contrast it with Diana. And the other thing that occurred to me is it's almost impossible not to contrast it with a person who should not be mentioned, um, with America and with uh, the the move um, to uh, America first, yes. a large authoritarian uh, movement, and some say also on the left, authoritarianism is very popular, trending. Um, I don't think we think, you mentioned rhetorically and the scene there with the turning it around, but I don't think we think of, of um, this monarch as an authoritarian. Right. Uh, that would not be a word we would use at all. Uh, love, beloved, respected. I mean, all the things that have been said already, right. stolid, um, solid, 
just the continuity. 70 years. And I have to mention that there are many, and I'd mentioned this to you before, that she she came to power um, in 1953, 16 months after the passing of her father, who never wanted to be king either, who stuttered, and was it was Edward who abdicated. She came to power because of a crisis. A crisis is, anthropologists say, a breach in society. Something breaches. And what breaches, what a breach then was the abdication. Here is this, here is this man born to be king, Edward. Um, he didn't want to be. He goes off and has an affair with and, and marries this woman, this romantic uh, fling, marries this woman, this American woman, Wallace Simpson. And what happens is that Elizabeth, who was way down on the succession, was never going to do this. And famously, her sister, Princess Margaret, was born to do it. She was an entertainer. She was fabulous, told dirty jokes. She was great. She would have been a wonderful monarch. And, and Elizabeth knew this. But she was a totally different person. She wanted to hide. She was cast into a role that she learned to adapt. She learned to adapt to be the queen, to be the monarch. And she got it from her father. I believe, again, a mediated reality. But she got it from, from her father, apparently a good guy, who, who was cast into a role he didn't want to do. I think uh, it's as we've said, we, we've had the queen for 70 years. When we look ahead, we're not going to have a queen for a long time, given the fact that you've got Charles and William. But I think both of us share something when we were discussing yesterday. I think we were anticipating the rhetorical impact, which we're beginning to see the first wave. You had an opportunity when you were in a different mode of wandering through London uh, with your wife and or maybe fiance at the time. And you had shown myself and Shepard a picture that you snapped. And I'd like for you to talk about that. And then I'll talk about meeting her when I was the speechwriter for Mayor Bradley when she visited Los Angeles and stayed on the QE2. So, Rob, you were in London and it's amazing that you would have this picture of a very young, vivacious Elizabeth and the Duke. Well, the two things I have in common with the Queen. Uh, f- first is um, when she she got shorter oh, as she aged. And I have recently, in the last few years, my driver's license uh, re- reports me no longer is five foot nine. <laughs> she was a head shorter than Charles uh, at the Jubilee, even with those big queen shoes of hers. And the second thing I have in common is that my wife and I, who were touring um, Europe for six weeks um, in 1972, 50 years ago, happened to be visiting the British Museum's famous King Tut exhibit, probably made even even more famous in this country by Steve Martin's a comedy about yes. it, King the Great King Tut. And at that time, uh, Elizabeth and uh, Philip were also visiting the same day in March of 1972. And you were just milling around, and there they were. And I was milling around, and I was on whatever floor I was on. And this, of course, never would have happened then. Now, my wife had just got a new uh, Minolta camera for our tour of Europe. Shakespeare, Italy, all of that, all the countries. 
Western Europe. And she uh, knew that I didn't take photographs uh, really at that time. And obviously there were no cell phones. So, but she had to go to the bathroom. She ran to the ladies' room and she had heard an announcement. We'd heard an announcement from one of the, of the guards that said, the queen is coming through. Please get behind the rope line. I got behind the rope line. There weren't many people. This would never have happened now. There weren't that many people. I was right right there as she and Prince Philip. And I'm, I'm looking at this photo now. This is perfect for radio. I'm looking at this photo now. And when she walked by me, the focal length was set on the speed and the shutter speed was set, not by me. And I clicked which reminds me of something else uh, tangential, but I won't go into it now about a funny photograph like that, an accident. And I happened to take the best photograph I've ever taken in my life, just about, which which shows, not Elizabeth is not looking at me at the camera. She's looking over at, seems to be looking over at Philip. And <clears throat> all we have of Philip is his nose and his balding head. And they're the very distinguishedly Philip. It's very, a, very distinguished. Shot. And she is looking bemused, um, very much like herself, and um, an and attractive 20 years into her reign. She was a very attractive young woman uh, with a very attractive young um, husband at the time that she clearly was quite in love with. And so I got this picture. Uh, and... What I love about it is that no one else has this picture. And there's endless amounts of pictures. And it happened to be a really good photograph. It, it's your moment with the Queen. It was a total accident because that was what the Queen, Philip, my wife Liz and I shared. Well, I, was, I will share mine. It was interesting when you and I spoke. Uh, I, as you know, uh, was a speechwriter for Mayor Bradley, uh, the longest reigning mayor in Los Angeles' history who inspired me who, to me as the American hero. But that's another podcast. And Mayor Bradley was someone who always wanted to share these types of moments. And since he was someone who really appreciated uh, being sort of a global leader, was the first person of color to go to China, uh, et cetera, he uh, reached out and said to the queen when she was visiting, I think she was up in British Columbia on the QE2, uh, would you like to stop in Los Angeles? And so when that was said, we had B. Canterbury, who was in charge of protocol, and she literally took us through protocol school for about two months about what to do. We were going to be eating with her, what type, you know, exactly everything. Now, I, of course, grew up in Southern Illinois and I had been trained in some respects, but I learned everything uh, from B. And I remember when the queen came, we all met her and we were told exactly how to greet her. And uh, once again, I was surprised at just there's a radiance that she had, a very genuineness, especially with her eyes. But also, I will say, I have never seen a person who was any whiter in my life. I mean, we're talking, yes, Caucasian, but this was just like a white, bright light. But also someone who looked and said, you know, so very nice to meet you. And of course, I was told to, to bow my head to a certain angle, but not below that. 
Uh, that was something that was very special to me. And I remember I, I took home a program and I had had one of her friends write a note and I went over and I think I have a picture where I'm somewhat in the distance, but that's in Laguna. So I think both of us were graced to have met a woman who I think has been remarkable and someone who I think you and I are going to be studying. I'm sure that we'll be having something at Emerson since we like celebrity and spectacle. As we are going to be meeting, for those of you, if this is out by Tuesday, uh, we're going to be doing a pizza and politics. We'll be looking at celebrity spectacle, the legacy of, uh, of Queen Elizabeth. And we invite anyone who would like to come and join us because this is a dialogue. Uh, it would be those who are supporters as well as those who might not be supporters. The one thing I like, Robin, you and I have talked about it is for 70 years, she was reigning, but she was not an ideologue. She was someone who seemed to bring the, the best out for all of us. What would be your hashtag for Queen Elizabeth as we close paint on politics? Um, I would say she embodied British culture. I think that's that's beautiful. What I was thinking today, and to me, especially when I've heard that, of course, she steered away from politics. Um, I think she really epitomized the essence of what Aristotle said in book three on ethos, credibility, trustworthiness, and charisma. And with that, Dr. Brown, who to me is such a resource on everything. He's written the book, The PR of Everything. Thank you for joining Pain on Politics, and we'll see you on Tuesday for Pizza and Politics. It was an honor, a delight. Thank you.